You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is March 1st, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are Perry DeAngelis. Happy March, everybody. Evan Bernstein. Happy Ash Wednesday, everybody. And Bob Novella. Hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Oh, Pretty great. good. Jim Dandy. Excellent. How's the weather? I'm actually recording tonight from sunny Jupiter, Florida. Oh, so you've retired. <laughs> That's I wish. Right. Uh, it's got to be sunnier up here. We're expecting snow in the northeast tomorrow. Thank yeah. you. It'll be sunny in the 80s tomorrow down here. Yeah, it's tough life, isn't it? It's beautiful. Beautiful. Good week. It's good tough. week to be down south. Tough life. Taking We're jealous. A, taking a little time out from my busy vacation to uh, to do the podcast. Always dedicated. Of course. We do it all for you, folks. Now we get a lot of feedback about the time of our po- of our podcast. Almost everyone who writes us an email says, love the podcast. I even get anxious when you guys are late in posting your podcast. So it's kind of, <laughs> you know, it's nice that they say that, but they all notice when we're late in putting up the podcast. Well, I wish we could be more consistent in, in doing it. We, we actually have been very good in the last six months of, putting one up every week. We definitely record one every week. Um, but the post-production may take uh, takes a variable amount of time, basically because, unfortunately, we all have real lives where we have to, like, you know, work and take care of families and stuff. So it, Go on it, vacation. Go yeah. on vacations, you know, stuff, stuff like that. So it, it uh, real life intervenes, and it may take – sometimes I can get it done the next day. Sometimes it takes, you know, four or five days. So there's, there might be a little variability, but – we have been very consistent. There always will be one per week, uh, and they'll be up on the web usually sometime between the Saturday to the Monday after we record. So that's the sort of the window we're going for. So just be patient with us. You know, hopefully when we get a big production staff, um, <laughs> we'll be able to, uh, to to be more consistent. But for now, we'll have to muddle through with what we have. As a side note, we are expecting to get new equipment relatively yep. soon, so we're hoping the audio quality will increase. We've, we've been making steady incremental technical improvements uh, over the last few months, but now we're going we're gonna to do an equipment upgrade and hope that takes it up another notch. Hope you've been noticing. Uh, one quick news item tonight uh, on uh, the evolution versus intelligent design front. Uh, this is, uh, you know, since the... The Dover, Pennsylvania decision. There have been a number of legislatures or school boards who have either canceled or scuttled or, or opposed um, either um, standards or bills or legislation to uh, either anti-evolution or, or pro-intelligent design. And uh, recently, just um, yesterday, this item was posted uh, in Salt Lake City. Um, their uh, House lawmakers scuttled a bill that would have required students to be told that evolution is not empirically proven. The, uh, the, bill's, the bill's sponsor was a Republican state senator, Chris Butars, B-U-T-T-A-R-S, um, said it was time to rein in the teachers who were teaching that man descended from apes. Those goofy Republicans. <laughs> but, uh, 
his bill <laughs> failed to pass. So I, I think what is is happening is that the legislatures don't want to pass laws that are going to be overturned in the judiciary. Yeah, and, right. Which you know makes sense. So they're, they're saving the court some time, which is good. You know that uh, these laws are being pushed back even further. Good. It's I'm very, very consistent. I haven't I haven't read or heard of anything going the other way really since the Dover decision. So I think. Uh, we're in a good time in terms of you know rolling back and pushing back these anti-evolution laws. Absolutely. He also, this guy says, Batarzas, I don't believe that anybody in there really wants their kids to be taught that their great-grandfather was an ape. <laughs> For God's sakes. Yeah. How often are we? I, certainly I wouldn't want to be told that because it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what year? What yeah, year is it? What year is That's it? True. That it's is true. So, that is so. That is so. Scope's monkey trial. <laughs> wow. Your granddaddy was an ape, <laughs> a monkey. Uh, and and, and a big problem with that is he probably doesn't even really believe that. He's just saying it to inflame yeah, well, people. He's certainly evidence of de-evolution. I don't know about evolution. <laughs> I mean, he certainly has a very limited understanding of evolution but even he no, no. i don't think I mean, that's that's that. hyperbole that's hyperbole but, yeah, it, but, is, it is it is um still. very useful it's useful how old is the earth well that's <laughs> six thousand years old six thousand years bishop usher <laughs> <laughs> i'm more interested in the rock of ages than the age of rocks <laughs> <laughs> yes go ahead what Another item on the religion I, front. I stole that from Inherit the Win. I have yes, to give you did. You proper did. credit. You I, uh... So a Connecticut man trying to make a quick buck on eBay, on eBay with a piece of metal. Now, this piece of metal happens to have what he claims is the face of Jesus on it. At least it's a little, little bit more substantial than the grilled cheese that was selling on there last year. I'm sure you guys remember right. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Are you kidding? <laughs> the virgin. Yeah, at least it won't <laughs> rot away. Hey, you could put it on your wall or something, you know. That's true. Yeah, but well, I think the current bid is over a thousand dollars for this. Uh, that's correct. As of tonight, the bid one thousand twenty-five dollars. Bidding ends one week from tonight, folks. So get your bid in. I think you can buy it now for ten thousand, if I'm not mistaken. A mere ten thousand. That's not I think bad. A button somewhere. Buy it so, now. So who knows? You know, there's obviously people cashing in on this. On this stuff, there are also other products out there on eBay, you know, claiming to uh, have other likenesses of Mary and Jesus. All sorts of relics and artifacts. Now, funny, Joseph never gets, uh, never appears on anything. I wonder why, why that is. It's always Mary and Jesus. I loved in the article, somebody said to him that it looks like Jim Morrison to me. That was, that was great. Yeah, right. Now, what's, it doesn't really say what the image is in. Is it just in the pattern of the, the burnished... Uh, sheet metal is that, or is it? There's no rust or paint or anything on it, right? No, from the from you know from the pictures, it looks like it almost looks like it's an oil stain of some kind. Like there's a very fine coat of oil, although I'm sure you know they put their well, maybe they haven't, but tried to smear it, you know, to see if in fact if it is just uh, some oil. But if they did that, perhaps they would, uh, you know, ruin something right, right. that is that is otherwise is going to yield them some money. Listen to uh, here's the description on eBay. I'll read it to you. It's pretty short. Um, here's how they describe it: the sellers' image of Jesus on sheet metal, unpacked right from the crate. I had to do a double take. I was totally amazed. Uh, several people, you can actually see an image of him with his arms in the air or 
a frontal and a side image of him. Okay, wow. so I guess like mugshot. Yeah, and here's, really. here's exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, he said, "I felt chills when I held it." Um, okay, so here he is, Manchester, Connecticut, February, 25 degrees outside, holding a piece of sheet metal. What do you think you're going to feel when you chills. hold a piece of sheet metal? <laughs> I felt <laughs> chills when I held this. I bet you oh, did. Oh, yeah. But, it's, you know, so, the, the Jim Morrison comment is classic because, you know, of course he doesn't see the face of Jesus. What he sees is a, you know, a vague resemblance of a human face, and he just assigns it the meaning that he wants it to have, but it could be anybody. Just doing a quick search on yeah. eBay, we have uh, an image of Jesus on wood. We have uh, an image of Jesus on pita bread. There's actually a piece of pita bread here with an image of Jesus on it. Uh, we have a photo of Jesus uh, in the clouds taken from a, a plane. We that have one is crusty. That picture has been circulating for decades. The the one out of the the clouds, the yes. cloud one. Oh, yes. I've seen uh, so many different iterations of that photo. We have an image of Jesus on a soft drink lid. In fact, there are a great many images of of, of Jesus out there. And I, and. and- yeah. In fact, if uh, you want another website to go to to see even more, uh, there's a very funny website called WhatWouldJesusSee.com. Uh-huh. And if you go there, they have uh, Im- they have captured images of Jesus on, uh, let's see, we have, of course, the sheet metal um, of recent news is on there. There are uh, doors, you know, the wood grain of doors. Uh, there's Mary on a, uh, the Virgin Mary on a basketball uh, backboard, you know, the, the board behind the really? behind the hoop. Um, there's, of course, the cheese sandwich. There is uh, the dent in a car that looks like Jesus. There's the fish bone that looks like Jesus on the cross. Very good website. You should take a look at it sometime. What would Jesus see? Dot com. It's pretty good, right? That's yeah. pretty funny, guys. I'm looking at the uh, the the auction right now, and uh, one thing that strikes me is that I mean, it looks like. Um, uh, just some some random image, you know, pareidolia is kicking in, and and it's a uh, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting image. I mean, you could clearly see you know the depression of the eyes and the and the nose and things. But one thing that seems to be missing, I mean, usually when you see an image of Jesus on something, um, one of the big features uh, that I think makes it very identifiable is the long hair. Right. Don't you, yes. don't you, don't you think? Right. I mean, you I mean, you could really put a vague image of anybody anywhere, but and if you put the long hair on them, you could you could say there that's Jesus. Right. There's no there's no impression of hair here at all. It's just it's just the face, the uh, the you know, the forehead down down to the chin and uh, and it's a little indistinct as you get closer to the chin. But it's just no hair here at all. I mean, this to me, this looks like Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. <laughs> Gary Oldman. The, the fine actor. I mean, yeah, of course. Of I mean, course. you could you could literally say this is anybody. It's just a generic face, and uh, I don't see any hands or, or at all. Any, any yeah, I don't quite get it. I, I've seen better like likenesses of Jesus on other objects and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it could it could be oil. It's it's probably some sort of you know iridescence or thin film interference. And uh, there, there, some oil got in there. It doesn't take much oil because, you know, oil spreads so, so thin. You just need a tiny drop of it. It, it actually gets – it spreads so, so thin because it, the, it has very little surface tension. And it can get so thin that it's, a, it's roughly equivalent to the, you know, the wavelength of light. So it's, it spreads super thin, and that's, and that's what th- this could be. Right, right. Well, actually, actually, Bob, speaking of oil, why don't I use that to segue into our email section? Uh, we got several emails – uh, about 
the podcasts last week, podcast last week. The first email uh, is from Rob Van Nostrand in Nova Scotia, Canada. He writes, uh, hello, I love your podcasts. Keep up the good work. Two questions. And we love Nova Scotia, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. Go ahead. I'm going to read his second question first, though we can talk about that one. I'll save his first question till later because we actually have another email about the same question, so I'll deal with them both at the same time. So his second question was, I don't know if this fits into your mandate or not, but I keep getting confused by the various opinions about the end of oil crisis, in particular the wide variances in the peak oil point, plus or minus 30 years. Some say we crossed this point in December 2005. Others seem to suggest it's still way off. The frustrating thing for me is that we know that we will run out of oil within the next hundred years. It seems odd that more action isn't being taken now. So, um, you know, we, can't, we don't want to get too much into the whole political question of what to do with the oil, but the, the scientific question is basically how much oil is there? How much oil can we get to? When are the supplies going to start running out? But that, that's the problem. It is... I mean, estimating the reserves is very scientific. I mean, there's going to be a certain amount of uncertainty in the estimates, but uh, but it's but it's it's not. It wouldn't be a huge uncertain a huge uncertainty. The problem is is that the, the actual figure itself is, is the whole process is such a political thing. Right. I mean, first off, you've got you've got governments. I mean, what's their incentive for t you know when governments you know own like 90% of the reserves, I mean, what's their incentive for giving the, you know, the, the best number that they can come up with? I mean, it's, you know, it's probably not to their benefit to actually do that in a lot of cases. And companies and oil companies, it's the same thing. I mean, for commercial reasons, I mean, they're not going to tell you, hey, this is exactly, you know, what, what we got. So it's such a political thing right. that it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to determine, you know, what the actual reserves are. Let me throw some, some estimates uh, that I that I gleaned from a, a quick search of the web. Uh, one guy here was saying that um, that uh, that we've reached peak, that we're going to reach peak this year. Mm -hmm. Now that means that we, that means that we've exceeded you know 50 percent, and that you and that the gains are going to show a slow you know a slow decrease. And uh, and this guy sounds this guy sounds very very reliable. I mean I was very impressed with this description of him. He's uh, his name is Colin Campbell. He helped find uh, he helped found the London-based Oil Depletion Analysis Center, and uh, he, apparently he's got no financial agenda, which is appealing to me for you know for an unbiased opinion. And he's spent uh, his entire life on the front line of oil exp exploration on multiple continents. He's a chief ge geologist for Amico. So this guy, I mean, it sounds like this is a, a pretty reliable source, and he's saying that, what's his you know, what's his be, motive for putting up the website. Uh, this was this was uh, an interview I believe he did for the Guardian uh, this uh, actually last year. So he's predicting this year that uh, we're going to reach the the peak amount. But uh, but I mean, what's his but, motive, you know, he, Bob? He started the Oil Depletion Analysis Center. What? Why? Why did he do that? I I, I guess to, to to try to come up with the best figure possible, and uh, you know, to, to, in determining how much oil we we actually have left. But but even this guy, you know, he's basing it on estimates, and I mean, you know, it's only as good as the estimates he's getting. So I mean, you go to the U.S. Geological Survey, and they're saying that peak production won't be won't come for 30 years. Then you've got the International Energy Agency; they're saying between 2013 and 2037. So it's all over um, the map. The information's it useless. It is. It, it is. I mean, it, there's just you know, first off, to really give a good scientific assessment. 
I, I figure that can't be that can't be very that can't be very cheap. And you've got the whole political aspect of it. So it's there. You go. I mean, either way, we really got to start. We got to turn. We got to turn the search for an alternative energy source into like a Manhattan Project. I mean, come on, let's do it. Even if even if we had millennia of oil left, there's still plenty of good reasons to get off oil. You know, so right. I mean, let's just do it. Come on. I mean, what what Bush, you know, the, the initiatives. Bush has set into motion the past month uh, are great, but man, let's do more. Let's keep it up and let's do more and more than even what he suggested. The, the part of the problem is that oil is still a really cheap source of energy, so it's not very. There's no economic incentive at the moment. Well, we're getting there until oil starts to run out. So we'll see. I think the, just getting back to sort of the, just the scientific question of how much oil is left. There's a lot of variables to consider. Um, it's like estimating what's the probability of life existing in the galaxy. Well, you have to make a you have to make a guesstimate on so many variables, and and the the error bars get magnified for each time you have another variable. And so the all the error bars you end up with are can be huge, can be orders of magnitude. So, for example, with oil, um, we don't know how much oil is actually in each um, reservoir that we have. You know, you drill a hole in the ground, you know, and I'm sure the geologists have lots of ways of estimating how much oil is down there, but they don't really know. The other part of it is that the technology for extracting the oil is evolving. Right. And, for example, if you do high-pressure steam injection into a used oil well, you may start to get more oil out, and we don't really know how much more oil. It may be another 50%. It may be three times as much as what was originally in there. Right. So, that's a huge variation that we just don't know. So do you take optimistic or pessimistic estimates of all of these variables? And will we find new reserves? That's who does. So I mean, know. the bottom That's line, the answer to this the question is currently is currently unknowable. Well, it's, right? I, I think you can say that it falls within a certain range, and and here are the error bars, but the error bars are huge. I don't think that we have a thousand years of oil left. Right. I think right. that there's 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 a there's a broad consensus for that. Uh I think that most of the estimates are less than 100 years in terms of reaching our peak. Um, well, Steve, a lot a lot of the most recent estimates are don't really go too far beyond beyond surprisingly 2020. Right, right. Um so and that's that that seems very telling to me. Um and even more reason to why we really got to start pouring billions of dollars in, into this. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you guys ever heard of oil shale. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, the oil shale has a lot of oil in it, and you can extract, you can make gasoline from oil shale, but right. you know, it costs more per gallon than just pumping it out of the ground. Now, I understand, right? It's... But here, here's a statistic I found though: the United States Office of Naval Petroleum and Oil Shale Share Reserves estimates the world supply of oil shale shale at 1.6 trillion barrels, uh, 80% of which are located in the United States. And, and that sounds that's a big number, but how much of yeah. our oil use is that? Right. It, right, yeah. That, that's, a good, that's a good chunk, Steve. Um, Still, it's, that, that, it's a lot harder to get oil out of shale, like we said. That's right. It's a more Much more expensive. Process. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the big problem. That, that is a big number, and that would last decades. Right. Um, what is oil today? About 60 bucks a barrel? Yeah, in the United States, sixty-six, something like that, sixty-six, sixty-seven. Yeah, 
That's still cheap. I mean, that's about 10 cents a cup. It's, you know, it's still cheap fuel, boy. It's cheaper than bottled water. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> of course, bottled yeah, water is a right. Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. Now, whole nother. <laughs> Rob's second que- first question, which I'm going to read second, is this. Regarding the G-Spot article, you might be interested in a recent podcast by Audible's In Bed with Susie Bright. She provided some additional insights that would seem to point out the flaws in the quest for quote-unquote nerve endings on the G-Spot. It appears that it is not on the surface but well beneath the surface and triggered more by internal pressure. Um, He jokingly says, I'll have to experiment with my wife. Um, She references another website with some information, gspotcenter.com. Again, this will be on our notes. Uh, so again, you know, uh, saying that the reason why, again, just, just to quickly summarize what we discussed last week with Terrence Hines, which was our, our guest, um, Terrence had published an article called, um, G, the G spot, a gynecological myth, where he basically said that there's no published scientific data establishing the existence of a G spot physiologically and anatomically. Um, that specifically, if you look at um, sections, pathological sections of the vaginal wall, there is no area that's any different than any other area, and specifically, there's no area that has higher concentration of nerve ending, which nerve endings, which is what one might predict would exist if there were a spot which is more sensitive. Now, he wasn't necessarily saying that the G-spot doesn't exist, just that he was surprised to find that there was no evidence to support its existence and that there are certainly other explanations for, uh, possible explanations for the anecdotal sort of experience that a G-spot may exist. The other email that we got was um, was this. The, uh, the, the sender requested that we do not use her name, uh, but she writes... First of all, I'd like to say that I've been listening to your podcast for several months and I enjoy it greatly, even to the point of getting irritated when you haven't posted a new one in a while. Um, it's refreshing to listen to people who are, is which prompted my, uh, my earlier comment, who are so dedicated to the scientific method and to cutting through some of the malarkey that passes for information these days. Keep up the good work, guys. Well, thank you. Here, here. Yes, 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 we will. We will continue. With that said, I have to respectfully disagree with your recent show where you debate the existence of the Grafenberg spot and female ejaculation. Please pardon my boldness, but in the interest of science, I'm going to get quite graphic here. She she sends me a link to um, a G-spot website, which I looked at, and it's, you know, it's just, there was, there was no scientific evidence on the site. It was just, this is how you find it. This is, you know, you can buy stuff to help you stimulate it, blah, blah, blah. She has a nerve to disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> this is an outrage. <laughs> All right, you can disagree this the- one time. Funny you used the word nerve there, apparently. <laughs> it's, just, it's all so part of the cerebral nature of the podcast. <laughs> she basically ahead, sends her anecdotal um, uh, experience with the fact that there is such a thing as a G-spot and female ejaculation. So I, t- I, I had some time after getting these emails. I actually did a literature search on the G-spot just to see what what's being published on this. I, I found... Terry Hines article, bunch of letters, nothing else really recently except for one thing. There was one article, um, you know, these are like technical medical articles, um, not opinion pieces that were published on it. Very interesting. It really, it wasn't really specifically trying to address whether or not the G-spot exists or not, but the implications of the article are very interesting. The title is, 
the electrovaginogram, um, study of a vaginal electrical of the vaginal electric activity and its role in the sexual act and disorders. So basically, it's a it is a sort of an anatomical physiological study looking at the electrical activity of the nerves in the vagina. Now, what they found is that the vagina has a pacemaker, what they're calling the vaginal pacemaker, which is cells in the vaginal wall which, which cause the vagina to contract, which, which is the origin of the rhythmic contractions that occur do, during coitus. And that this, they hypothesize that this vaginal pacemaker is the G-spot. Now that's very interesting because, so what they're saying is that the G-spot, if you stimulate it, that that triggers vaginal contractions, which is, which is part of a physiological response which causes heightened stimulation and arousal. So perhaps the G-spot is not any more sensitive than any other part of the vagina and therefore doesn't need more nerve endings. Perhaps the nerve endings that are there just function differently. They function as the pacemaker. So huh. that would be a possible – how about – so that could be a way – I haven't had an opportunity <laughs> to run this by Terry Hines. I'll definitely get his – I'll email him and get a response from him on this. Maybe we'll have him back to talk about it briefly. But um, that certainly is a, is a very plausible – alternate hypothesis for how you can have a G-spot without having an increased density of neurons, of, of nerve fibers or nerve endings in the vaginal wall. So I think that's a, and that's a better explanation than the one that was suggested in the, in the previous email about it being deeper. I think that's naive. I mean, you know, the, the whole vaginal wall was, has been looked at, um, not just the surface, and have it being pressure, you know, nerve endings. Well, those are nerve endings that you can stain and see too. So I don't think that that's a good explanation. But this explanation struck me as a perfectly consistent with existing evidence. It, it, again, it's one study. It, it, it needs to – it certainly needs corroboration. The, we need to see to, – to correlate, you know, the, the vaginal pacemaker, you know, with um, a, the psychological and physiological response of a so-called G-spot. I mean, there's lots of follow-up studies that need to be done to really, you know, ask all the questions that you, could, that you can ask about that. But that's interesting. Uh, definitely have to certainly that is by, yeah that's, a, that's very interesting it, it, it seems seems a reasonable hypothesis it does right yep. right yep. so maybe there is a g spot after all um, and it also you know, brings up again I like to talk about just the logical points that these kinds of questions bring up and their implications for skepticism in general it's always difficult to um, make an argument based upon the lack of evidence, right. um, and as as we say, you know, lack of evidence or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. But that's an oversimplification. It actually is evidence for absence, um, but you have to put it in the proper context. And this is where I think that skeptics and believers sort of get into unresolvable disputes. Um, if you if you're making an argument that something probably doesn't exist because we haven't seen it or found it yet, that always has to be coupled with a very um, realistic and unbiased assessment of how probable it is that we should have found it. So, for example, well, if we right. if we've never looked, set 
Big SETI. Foot. Big foot. SETI, right. SETI's a good example. So some people say, oh, you know, it's been 30, 40 years. We haven't heard any signals from aliens um, sending us radio signals trying to communicate with us. Therefore, they don't exist. But you have to say, well, how much of the sky have we surveyed? How much of the electromagnetic spectrum with what sensitivity and what power? So do we really expect that we have had a big chance of finding them? Um, we had this exact d dispute with um, the gentleman who believes in Bigfoot, going back a few podcasts. Um, again, the fact that we've no one's ever hit a Bigfoot with a car or taken a really good picture or video or there's zero biological evidence, a <laughs> DNA or a corpse basically, of, uh, of a Bigfoot was more compelling to us than to him. He thought that there was a low probability that we would have found biological evidence, and we thought that there was a high probability that we should have found biological evidence. And that's kind of an unresolvable judgment call. You know, how do you quantify the chance of finding an unknown entity? You can't do it. Right. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's the same thing. And the same, even though it, it, as different as Bigfoot and the G-Spot allegedly are. <laughs> I think the, we're uh, on to something here. Um, the, it's the same point of logic that you know, Terry Hines was saying, hey, no one has found anything physiological that can correlate to a G-Spot. And the believer said, but we haven't really looked. And there could be something else that we're not thinking of. And in this case, yeah, they may have been right. I mean, not that they haven't looked because we have looked. We've taken sections and it's, it's been explored. But, you know, this is a, a completely different approach, you know, thinking of it not as increased density but different type of neurons that, you know, that's always the variable when you're basing a, a conclusion or an argument on, the, on a lack of evidence that there could be a kind of evidence that no one has even thought of yet that, that can hit you. You're a neurologist, Steve. That is a reasonable explanation. I mean, neurons that act differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Those those kind of pacemaker, you know, um, function of neurons is is well established. Okay. Right. So, and there, you know, the evidence that they have found a vaginal pacemaker is preliminary. I think you know. So again, it needs further explore, exploration, but it's perfectly reasonable. It's nothing right. earth shattering in just that that implication right there. Very, very interesting. One more uh, email. Um, this one comes from a gentleman who calls himself Aram, A-R-A-M. Uh, he writes, I'm an avid listener. I've downloaded all your podcasts and listened to them every day while I drive. I've every learned day. a lot from you guys, especially with science or fiction. Well, thanks, Aram. We enjoy science or fiction very much as well. Anyway, I have yeah. a question right. about Zachariah Sitchin. I haven't read his book, The Twelfth Planet, yet. However, I do know about some of the claims he makes. I wanted to know what you think about Sitchin's interpretation of the Sumerian tablets and that we come from a family of aliens, um, Anunnaki or whatever, and some revolving planet, Nibiru. Uh, I'm sure you can debunk it in minutes. I'm very skeptical about it. I heard about Sitchin in a book by Lloyd Pye. You guys remember Lloyd Pye, right? Oh, sure. The author of the book, Everything You Know is Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, he talks about the gaps in the fossil record that our closest ancestor apes only have a few genetic defects, and we have thousands. How can it be that we have so many defects and our closest DNA ancestors have so little? Well, first off, we don't have DNA of, of our closest ancestors. I mean, how could you make that assessment when you, we've, we don't have a, a good example of any DNA from, you know, from Cro-Magnon or... Or Neanderthal. Well, I, mean, I, mean, I think they, they he. I think he meant living ancestor. I think he meant living ancestor. I'm mean, just assuming that what he's talking about is chimpanzees and, and gorillas. 
as our closest living ancestors. I believe so that's here, correct. Yeah. Here's here's the, okay. Here's the logical problem with that question. This is the problem with the question. So. Well, it's um, wrong. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> well, he's just asking. He, I, I just will assume he just doesn't understand why is it that human beings have so many more now he, what he calls genetic defects. A geneticist would call a genetic mutation, which is which is technically you, you can't think of it as a defect, but that implies that one gene sequence is correct and another one is incorrect. So it's not. It's really kind of a misnomer. Is when we use mutations because it just means that they're different. Uh, so what that means is that if, like, if you look at um, any protein, uh, you know, in, in in humans, you look at the gene. Maybe there's a thousand base pairs in the DNA sequence that codes for that protein, um, and there may be, you know, twenty or thirty different varieties or genetic varieties of that protein. If you across the human spectrum, um, you can have lots of mutations in in the DNA sequence that do not affect the, the protein at all. A, a lot of mutations are what we call silent mutations. Silent mutations, in other words, different combinations of three base pairs may code for the same amino acid. So that means there's literally zero difference in the final protein structure. Um, those mutations cannot be, a, cannot be altered by evolution because there's no phenotype. There's no effect to them. Uh, so basically, when those mutations occur, there's no evolutionary selection against them. Uh, that has led to the creation of what we call a molecular clock or a DNA clock. So these mutations should happen on a regular basis, just on the basis of the stability of the DNA molecule and the efficiency of the repair mechanisms. So they, they basically pop up in DNA based upon the size of the DNA over a period of time. And we can, we've used this to, to, to decide how far in the past different species have diverged from each other um, by comparing their DNA and seeing how many mutations they have in common and how many are different. If we have X number of, mut of new mutations that are different than, say, from chimpanzees, and that means that, you know, Comparing that to the molecular clock, we must have split with them five million years ago, for example. So, but here's the thing: genetic mutations will increase over time, just as a natural course. They will increase the larger the population that you have, and if you, whenever a, a species goes through a period of time where they have a very small population. Most of these mutations, most of these genetic variations die out, and then a very few mutations become the parents, if you will, of whatever subsequent you know population exists so that 's what happened you know that happened with the human species about two hundred thousand years ago. That was the most recent narrow population hole that we passed through. There was probably about 2,000 individual human ancestors living at about 200,000 years ago. We were basically on the brink of extinction. Wow. And all the 6.5 billion people that are alive today all can trace back their parentage to those 2,000 founders. So the number of mutations that we have basically cropped up over the last 200,000 years. Um, chimpanzees have a much smaller population, and they passed through you know, these constrictions of populations much more recently so they're much less of they're much more of an inbred population so they have many fewer mutations than 
the six and a half billion people have. Does that make sense? All right, so that's what he was talking about. Yeah, that's okay. what he was talking about, and then, and the, and we know that the explanation is is going through these these population narrowings and how long in the past. It's a little occurred. dense, but I got it. Yeah, it's a, it is complicated. It's understand that's why you can understand why he just didn't understand what the answer to that is. But morons like Lloyd Pye, you know, <laughs> use these you know somewhat sophisticated genetic arguments to claim that there's some something wrong with the standard explanation for genetics and evolutionary relationships. What the only thing that's wrong is that Pye doesn't understand the first thing of the topics that he deigns to completely denounce. <laughs> That's you know why you can write a book with the title of everything you know is wrong. I mean because he, <laughs> because this guy doesn't know the first uh, thing about anything. I always get a chuckle on that <laughs> title. Steve, so, so Steve, wouldn't it wouldn't it be interesting if we? I mean, if our population was narrowed so drastically, um, I mean we we might be you know considerably different species now with uh maybe not a, maybe not considerably but i mean we'd have some we might have some really bizarre mutations that would be of course normal if we were used to it but but from our point of view might be like whoa right. what's well, that you mean like right laser now. beam eyes and wings and stuff <laughs> what are you talking about here yeah oh, no no those are fine. The <laughs> um well you know if you think about the the degree of genetic variation in the human species today is you know the different races you know the um, Caucasian, Asian, African, Australian. Um, that is, that's the amount of genetic variation that arose over 200,000 years based upon geological separation. Separation creates, you know, disparity, diversity, and, and time does. Uh, yeah, so imagine if Homo sapiens um, uh, were a, a large outbred population but geologically separated for half a million years or a million years. Right. Now, at some point, you cross the threshold to where you're different species. But just shy of that, you can have very different races. Um, you know, you could think of like think of how different breeds of dogs are. All dogs are the dogs, same species, yeah. but you have you know Chihuahuas and Saint Bernards. Those are pretty different, but they're the same species. Right. And they can share they can share genetic material. Um, so yeah, I mean it'll be very interesting. You know, think of the the historical problem we've had with racism, which is with, right. with the, the the disparity that we have now. Imagine if there were more dramatic differences uh, in in human races or subpopulations. It'd be interesting. Let, let's get to the to the first part of Aram's question, where he talks about the twelfth planet. Uh, Zachariah Sitchin. Uh, I, I I did not read the Twelfth Planet, but I did read Zachariah's website and some, a lot of what he's written in his articles, where he summarizes and talks about his claims. Um, this guy's a total oddball. You know, there, he um, his website Sitchin.com goes over the, his basic claims. So he this guy basically believes that um, you know this is he interpreted some ancient Sumerian texts and decide you know about six thousand years old, what he calls the Sumerian cosmogony, whatever that is. <laughs> um and he, he believes that there was a, a large planet in our solar system called Tiamat, which was Tiamat Tiamat, Tiamat. <laughs> five headed five, dragon. Five -headed dragon. <laughs> right, that's right. Which was I think that's a, from Sumerian legend. <laughs> yeah. Was, was was struck by a planet which was ejected from another solar system oh, called Chimera. Oh my God! <laughs> the, uh, Do you know the odds of a planet from another solar system hitting 
our solar system? Uh, I do. I really do. <laughs> oh, my God. Spock does. He can that up. Oh, sure. Um, that this create the collision created the Earth and the asteroid belt. And, and the planet, the, pl- the planet was captured in er- in the in solar orbit, but it's it's farther out. It's the twelfth planet in our solar system. So okay, there's huge problems with that hypothesis. I mean, he- enormous. First of all, the Earth is in such a nearly perfectly circular and stable orbit that it could not have historically had such a catastrophic collision, especially one that would have so significantly knocked it from its original orbit. Well, Steve, don't forget. Now, don't forget, though, um, that in in our past, I think it's pretty generally accepted that that the Earth was hit by a Mars-sized object um, many, you know, early in our formation – and uh, so they, I mean, they might come back to you with something like that, saying, "Hey, scientists agree on this, and uh, and our orbit is still, no, absolutely, know, our orbit is still, you absolutely, know, as you describe co- it, that collision formed probably formed the moon. So what you had was right, basically, right. you know, in the early solar system, you know, that was was made from collisions. All the planets were basically the product of massive collisions, and you know, initially with small objects, and they got bigger and bigger. Um, and at some point early on in the Earth's history, a, a fairly large object hit the Earth the, and split off the moon. But, you know, that was probably something that was already kind of in our orbit. Right. Um, well, let, Steve, let me, let me just quickly – I saw a simulation of what this might have been like right. real quick. Uh, real quick. It was very interesting. This was a planet that was – like I said, it was Mars-sized. and it which was in small, an or- much smaller than the Earth. Right, which is um, about – oh, I, God, I'm not quite sure – half, a third, something about, like it's that. It's a, a third. It's one-third the diameter, I believe. And, and, and it was in a very, very similar orbit. And it, at one point, you know, it just kept getting closer and closer. And, and I just got this image in my head of what that last orbit would have looked like. The, the last time it went by us without hitting us, could you imagine what that would have looked like, having this planet shoot by your planet? That I mean, it would be, it'd be like 100 times bigger than the moon. And then, of course, the next orbit, it, it knocked into the Earth. And, and, uh, and actually, uh, they spec- billiards. They, uh, well, yeah, I mean, scientists speculate that they're actually life... Life might have gotten a foothold on Earth before the collision, um, and they, they actually called that Earth before the collision Mark 1, and the Earth we're on now is Mark 2 in the sense right. that life might have been completely scrambled and started over from scratch. And if we were never hit, I mean, we could be populated with life. I mean, we would be populated with we life would be very completely, different than we now. completely different than what we have now. Huh. So, but the, but the upshot of that is that you, um, just look, you know, Newtonian mechanics, you had you know, two objects in a similar circular right. orbit hitting each other and resulting in... Right. The relative velocities a, wouldn't be immense. A bi- yeah, basically a binary system with the moon and the earth. Um, still in... It's like hitting a car on the highway, you know, traveling in the same direction and nearly the same speed you are. It's not nearly as nasty as a head-on right. collision. You know, or getting hit from the side, you know. At a, at right, a, which, right. You know, so if you imagine a planet careening in from another solar system at an incredibly eccentric orbit, and the other thing to think about, Bob, is what he's saying is that some of this material resulted in the the uh, asteroid belt, which is beyond the orbit of of Mars, which makes no Mars sense, and Jupiter, right? 
and then the and the rest resulted in in the Earth in this nearly perfectly circular orbit. I mean, that's also extremely impossible from a mechanical right. point of view. Uh, that's quite a, a, it's a quite a trick view. shot. And yeah. to boot, it seeded the Earth <laughs> like of life that. at the same time. Um, and somehow the ancient Sumerians figured all this out. Of course. They're brilliant. They're brilliant. Now, <laughs> Absolutely. His website today is interesting because he tries to take credit for predicting things like um, collisions, saying that, oh, yeah, when I first wrote my book, astronomers scoffed at the notion of, of catastrophic collisions occurring in planet formation, and, and now that's a, ma- a mainstream part of of uh, astronomy and cosmology that's you know that's nonsense he also his most recent thing is he's he's quoting the um remember we had reported recently about the finding the most earth-like planet to date around another star right and he's somehow trying to say that this supports his entire hypothesis like see there are other earth-like planets out there and isn't it interesting that this planet is about the same size and distance from the sun as what I said Tiamat was. No, it's not interesting at all. I mean, that's it has absolutely nothing to do with his hypothesis. Wow. Um, and, you know, he's trying to, like, make it seem like astronomers doubted that there ever would be Earth-like planets around other stars. I never heard that. That's just nonsense. So, you know, he's, he's really, really grasping at straws, trying to trump up you know, intervening astronomical discoveries to make it seem like it somehow supports what he said, when in fact there's zero evidence for his scenario and nothing has been discovered which which supports it. So, Steve, what was he selling? Well, his book, you know. <laughs> uh, Everyone's got a book. Thing. These guys make money by giving lectures, selling books. Yeah. Um, he also has a section in here on biblical prophecies, um, so he's into that as well. What else does he talk about? Oh, here we go. Uh, I did want to talk about this. So now he has puzzling photographs from Mars need explanation. Oh, my. Here we These go. These are not the face on Mars, which is old news. Uh, the canals. <laughs> no, yeah, that's even older. Uh, but these are photos taken by the Mars rover. And these are oh, on yeah. his website. I've so I'm looking at one right now. So it's a very nice p- picture provided by NASA of the surface of Mars. You can see a little bit of the rover in the lower right-hand corner of the picture. It's a Martian landscape. And in the distance, you can see two dust devils. You you guys have seen dust devils, right? It's a little swirl of dust. The surface of Mars is very dusty. In fact, when during a Mars storm, you may Mars has dust storms, which last for days or weeks that absolutely scour the surface. Well, let me guess, Steve. He thinks that this little dust devil is proof of a Tasmanian devil on Mars? <laughs> that, that would be more logical than what he says. <laughs> um, he says, but, he writes, but as one looks closely at the photographs, there are, ma- there are many of them. One notices incredible features, what looks like a long sand-covered wall, a black stone ring, a sand-blown conical structure and rectangular areas marked, marked off by stone ba- boundaries. What I see is nothing. I mean, there's <laughs> nothing there. I mean, this guy has a very active imagination. You talk about pareidolia. Talk about yeah. the face of Jesus. There's nothing on this guy. I mean, seriously, it's a horizon. It's, look, it's like you're looking at the Mojave Desert, and there's a little... I mean, there's, I, don't, I, I, I can't even imagine what the guy's seeing. 
Perry or Evan, this guy would look at that sheet metal, exactly that sheet metal, and he'd see the last. Exactly, yeah, I was just going to say that the yeah, whole thing, gonna, right? All twelve well, apostles. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, the the, the um, it's just rocks scattered across a, a desert-like landscape. I mean, it's just <laughs> uh, if you look at enough of these pictures uh, of just again just random alien landscapes you know people pour over these thousands of pictures being produced by NASA and they find all kinds of you know apparent things but it's really just looking for for patterns in, in these random pictures or, th- or even or, or Steve even even obscure geological formations and oh I could see that You're, you see something that really a shape that you're like what the what is that how could that have been created and you know you talk to a geologist and he's like oh yeah no problem I mean you, you could explain these things but I mean people just take it to the nth degree right right well let's let's do our science or fiction it's time for science or fiction The theme for this week is too good to be true. So each week, I come up with three science news facts or items. Two of them are real, two are science, and one I've made up. One is fake. It's total fiction. Uh, occasionally, my, my skeptical colleagues have sat in for me and done their own science or fiction, but I, I do most of them. Uh, so the, and you as the audience, of course, are encouraged to play along with us. I'll read all three items. And then solicit comments from uh, my panel of skeptics. We'll see if they could figure out which one is fiction. Are you guys ready? Yeah, yep. ready. So again, these are these are all the, the sort of loose theme here is that these are all things which sound too good to be true at first blush. Item number one: Scientists have built a quantum computer prototype that was able to compute the correct answer to a calculation without having to actually run. Item number two, a review of data at a recent symposium at the annual National Academy of Sciences meeting supports the claim that chocolate is healthy for the heart and has other health benefits. Item number three, material scientists from MIT have developed a process that can mass-produce carbon nanofiber cables of any thickness or length. Such cables would be many times stronger and lighter than steel. So, do we have a quantum computer that can do calculations without having to actually run? Is chocolate healthy, or can we mass-produce nanofiber cables stronger than steel? Evan, why don't you lead off? I'm tempted to say B is the one uh, that was made up. However, I don't know. Boy, this is this is a good one. This is really good. These are all too good to be true in my estimation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> certainly there's some kind of appeal to that chocolate being healthy one, like too much of an appeal in that that's the one you're trying to you're trying to trip us up with. So, okay, what the heck? Why not? I'll just say that B is the uh, is fiction here. Um, chocolate Already? is. Chocolate's okay, number healthy. two. Yep. Chocolate's good for you. Evan's right. wrong. Uh, it's uh, it's dark chocolate that's good for you. I, I believe <laughs> I recently heard that. So Evan got <laughs> that you. wrong. Uh, I uh, you know, 
I just my logic just tells me that A is. I mean, I don't see how you know if the thing is off, it's off. I mean, you know, I don't see how it could work. I, I'm, I'm simply just based on that. I'm going to go with A. I think A is false. Okay. All right. Bob? Uh, both you guys are wrong. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, uh, Steve, you're generally very good about finding these articles that, that, that I am not privy to, and I generally have to just rely on, you know, past experience to try to figure out. Or You've read these. Um, the first one, the first one, the quantum computer does exist. I, I read the article on it, and I actually uh, I sent it to my home email account so that I could potentially use it in How a science How could it work if it's uh, off? Entry. That, you know, I, I read it. I have to read it a couple more times before before I could do it justice for right, so I'm not even right. going to attempt but 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 it it did it sounded somewhat plausible <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I yeah in my defense Bob I had very short amount of time for this one cuz I'm stuck down here right. in Florida I just got internet access a couple hours ago down there. <laughs> but I'd I had to go to to more to less obscure sites so that's why <laughs> I'm not surprised right. you've read these ones now, the, oh, okay, okay. The chocolate health benefits. Yeah, I mean, I've read stuff similar to that. Not recently, but that does dark chocolate, dark chocolate only. Well, come on. Like, remember, remember, I said this is a recent symposium yeah. reviewing the data yeah. and basically supporting these these claims that you may have heard in the past. Okay. Just to be clear. Just now, the third one. That is too good to be true. I I <laughs> I like to think that I would have heard something about this. That I mean. Mass-producing carbon nanotubes of any length? Can you say space elevator? I mean, that would be really? that, that's like the only that's like the only major technological, you know, problem that we that we need to surmount in order to produce, you know, what you know a uh, a satellite, you know, a, a, an elevator to uh, to a satellite in space. But that's but that's kind of like an esoteric application. But that, I mean, being able to produce them any length you want, that's the biggest problem with these nanotubes is actually making them so Bob, in quantity. You, and, you, and sound, you sound pretty confident. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I am. Is and, that, and is if, that your if, final answer? Oh, it is. And if, it's, and if I'm wrong and it's true, I hope I'm wrong, because if that's true, that's you awesome. <laughs> no. No. Go ahead. Okay. What do you got? All right. Well, let's, let's go to number one. Number one is the quantum computer can give results without the uh, here's the uh, the article quantum computer gives results without running now, I had to read the article a couple of I'll times I'll bet myself. you did it's, it's yeah. uh, whatever you whatever you're <laughs> dealing with the quantum stuff I mean so basically um, the, what the this is true the, the computer um, was trying to it was comparing two states of I think of a photon whether or not it was in one state or another and the computer had to decide if um, if they matched or not that was the the calculation that it was doing so a very very basic one bit of information kind of thing right but it's but it's yeah but it's I mean, there is some sort of interaction going on yeah but they well they they ran they either they you know they did the old beam splitter thing where right. the photon it either depending on its quantum state, either it either goes through the computer or it doesn't. So it's in a juxtaposition, right, of, ha go, of going through and superposition. not going through. Superposition. Superposition, I'm sorry, you're correct, a superposition. And what, what they were able to show was that when, they, when it collapses and it either goes through or doesn't go through, basically when they take the measurement, that on, uh, at times when they're able to prove that the beam of light did not go through the computer, it still was able to produce the correct prediction of whether or not the states matched or not. 
So in other words, when the, when, the, when, the light beam, when the photon didn't go through the computer, the computer still got the right answer, um, which is amazing, which of course has something to do with the whole quantum fuzziness of, of, of superposition. Right. It must, but what? Yeah, not that anybody really I don't even know what, what you're means. talking about. What are you, I, I'm serious. I'm lost. <laughs> I, I, I don't right, even Steve. know what it's you're tough. talking very, about. I got you, Steve. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so okay. now the the implications of this are huge. The, the, this is you know it, it may not sound that impressive, but it's it's a huge step forward for the whole quantum computing technology. And they're predicting that they can get the reliability of this process up to close to one hundred percent. And that well, what you know, will it mean? Super super fast computers? What it means? Yes. What it means is computers that run trillions of times faster. Trillions, trillions. with a T. Well, but, but I mean, yes. for certain applications, it's not like you're going to have a quantum computer on your desk running Word. No. I mean, that's that's really not going to happen. But for certain applications, like cryptography and code breaking, it's it's going to be wicked fast. But not it does it, you can't p- apply it to everything. Like Great, a general purpose some fifteen-year-old is going to use this to hack into my Mastercard account, <laughs> and rip off yeah. my freaking numbers. <laughs> right, basically. Hor- horrific, frankly. Yeah. Next one. Let's go to number two. Yeah. Of course. The name of the article is Prescription Strength Chocolate Revisited. Right. <laughs> Again, it's true. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but let me give you the upshot of this. The more common claim, and this has been encouraged by certain manufacturers of chocolate products, is that chocolate has health benefits and that the dark chocolate, as Perry right. said, is Ooh. the healthy kind of chocolate. However, it's not true ah. because pr- mm-hmm. the um, mass-produced chocolate, even the dark chocolate, any if you buy a chocolate bar on you know at the candy shop, it has none of the um, the specific products in there that that have been shown to have the health benefits. Basically, chocolate, naturally occurring chocolate, contains flavonoids, and flavonoids have a number of effects antioxidant and other effects, uh, although the, you know, the key is not that actually turns out it's probably not their antioxidant effect, but in any case, that have been shown to have cardiovascular benefits. It may have some anti-cancer benefit, but the jury is still out on the net clinical benefits of chocolate, if any. There is very suggestive preclinical data and some preliminary clinical data to suggest that, you know, especially for the cardiovascular benefits. The problem is there's also some good epidemiological data in terms of native peoples that, you know, that consume chocolate. But um, the problem is that when, you, when, when big companies you know, process chocolate, they destroy all the flavonoids. So any alleged benefit is gone. Yeah. Those bastards. The, the, the key is the, that they've, they've gone farther in identifying what the active compounds are in chocolate that potentially can be helpful cool and there and may be able to that that may enable manufacturers to change their manufacturing process so that their the the flavonoids and the other things are not destroyed so it may be that Steve make a pill out of it screw the chocolate right right <laughs> or or you just you know pack them into a pill um, yeah. Which is the other thing you do, you know, that that's what the pharmaceutical industry has been doing for 100 years is you find, you know, a naturally occurring, you know, herb or plant or root or whatever that um, has some physiological effect. You isolate, purify, identify the active ingredients, you know, do safety and 
pharmacological and physiological studies on them, find out dosing, and then start testing them for specific clinical applications. That's, you know, that probably will happen with this whole thing as well. But um, it's also possible that you, you may be able to buy chocolate bars that actually may, ha may have some, you know, healthy substances in them. And I just stick a multivitamin in a Hershey bar. And that. <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be the same? So... As far as that goes, that was true. You know, I think that again, there's still I think a long way to go before there's convincing clinical evidence, but that was that was true. The last one, so the last right. one is <laughs> the, the last one was uh, was fake. That was fiction. Um, Damn, Bob was exactly right. I didn't think. I, I thought I might just you know get you on that one, Bob, because you would have been so starry-eyed about the the implications. But you're right. We probably would have heard about this. So carbon nanofibers have been produced. These are um, like little helical structures of carbon atoms that produce these very, very tiny tubes, which are super strong fibers. If you could actually make a cable out of these things, it would be much stronger than steel, much lighter. And uh, you know, Bob already mentioned one of the applications being a, um, a space elevator. Basically, this is the idea is like you anchor a big cable to the equator somewhere and at the top side to a um, a station in geosynchronous orbit, and you can just use it as an elevator to hoist things into orbit. The problem is that we don't have any material which is strong enough right. to, so that it won't snap. So it's theoretically possible, but we don't have something to make the cable out of. Carbon nanofibers would be strong enough to support a space right. elevator, but we, the problem is that we can only make them very, very tiny. We, have, we don't have a manufacturing process where we can create them longer and thicker. So that's that's the next sort of technological breakthrough that we need. Yeah, and Steve, don't forget now, carbon nanotubes have uh, you know a host of other potential applications well beyond uh, you know a strong rope. I mean, it's no, I mean they could using them in computers or their conductors or semiconductors. There they could make transistors. I mean, they could do so many. There's so many potential applications of this. It's like a wonder material that that's ju that's just going to explode. <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly seems why do that they have way? to be tubes? That, well, why, why they, tubular? They they self assemble. They self assemble into these tubular shapes. Oh, and, and it's a very strong structure. That's the whole point. Well, good Bob, good good job this this week, Bob. You uh, and it, it helps when you actually read the the, the science stories that I'm basing my of course, science picture. But that's part of it. You, you use the word nano, right? If the word <laughs> nano, nano exists crud. anywhere out there, Bob Bob has <laughs> read or studied up on nano, it like nano, no nano. one else. It's true. So that's why Bob would have heard a about nano it. Junkie. If it were it's a nano junkie. It's a fact. disgrace. Now, I'm, I'm very excited. I mean, That's apart true. from nanotechnology, I'm very excited about the prospects of a space elevator. After reading a few articles by uh, this this one guy who's really, really pushing it, and he he just made it seem something that wasn't as so so much pie in the sky that maybe my great grandkids will see. It's it's something that we can potentially see in our lifetimes, b based on what I've read and what this guy has said. It'd be interesting. It'd be very interesting. It'd be a major, major project. Right, and one and once you have one of these things. You could build your second one, real. I mean, right. in a fraction of the time because you have access to a, a pre-existing space elevator. So the second one that you build, you know. But uh, hey, imagine talk about a uh, a terrorist target. That's true. That's true. Right. right. We, we, we may be t technically capable of building and maintaining a space elevator before we're politically able to to maintain it. Um, it would be 
such a target? And how do you protect a... a it's true of a would, lot of things. What would things. it be? Yep. Um, 23,000 miles? Uh, how do you, yeah, how do you I mean, it's, a, yeah, it's a long ways out. But... The main thing you'd have to protect would have to be the, you know, the anchor on the Earth. I mean, you could put you could put a flotilla of warships around it. I mean, no one's going to get near it unless they're they, you know, they're supposed. If to. there was only one, it wouldn't be too hard to protect. If, if there was only one, right? You know, and it wouldn't right. be too hard to protect. And it Steve, really if these terrorists have access to missiles that can reach that can reach it high, you know, high up, then you have you've got other worries besides right. uh, them attacking your space elevator, you know. Absolutely. Well, guys, believe it or not, we are out of time. That's impossible. That was a quick show. <laughs> Good episode, guys. I enjoyed it. Bob, Evan, Perry, thanks for joining me again. Thank you. Thank you all. Always a pleasure. Steve, I hope, I hope it's cold and rainy in Florida. Yeah. Your, your wishes will go unfulfilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm used to it. I'm used to it. <laughs> Uh, everyone out there, thanks for listening. Um, again, if you have any questions for us, please email us. Uh, you can get our email off of off of our website, www.thenest.com. Uh, if you want your voice to be heard on our podcast, and you can email us a uh, either a wave or MP3 file of you speaking your question, and we'll play it on the podcast. Rather than just wouldn't that be neat? Rather than just <laughs> reading uh, your emails, so send us your questions. They're they're um, always enjoyable. Great, it's good to, to hear from our listeners. Uh, guys, again, thanks uh, for everyone out there. We'll see you next week. This has been your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.thenes.com. You can send us questions, comments, and suggestions to podcast at thenes.com. Theorem is performed by Kenetto and is used with permission. Thank you.